census? Ah, the census is a special time when we count every single person in the country. Do kids and babies count too? Of course. Counting everyone in your home helps support your neighborhood by funding schools, hospitals, and more. So complete the census by calling, going online, or returning your form by mail. It's totally private. Visit 2020census.gov and make your family count. Brought to you by Carnegie Corporation of New York and the Ad Council. Shortly after the war, David Malacha joined Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants. Rube Foster was an unlettered genius who won the nickname Rube when he defeated the great major leaguer Rube Waddell in a barnstorming game. It was Foster who formed the first Negro National League in 1920. Modeling themselves directly on the big leagues, the Negro Leagues capitalized on the inherent drama of pennant races and urban rivalries to win the hearts of black baseball fans. By 1923, there were two Negro Leagues with franchises that stretched from Kansas City and Chicago to the Eastern Seaboard. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there. How you doing? It is uh, time again for yet another episode of your favorite podcast. Of course, it's called Good Seats Still Available. If you're new to the proceedings, welcome. My name is Tim Hanlon. I am your uh, uh, your uh, ringleader, your uh, master of ceremonies, your doctor of defunct, your captain of contraction, your, your reverend of relocation, your professor of previously domicile, wh- whatever you call me. First of all, please keep it clean. But number two, it doesn't matter. Just come on in and uh, and welcome uh, to the proceedings. If you've been here before, well, you know the drill. This is our curious little podcast that is devoted uh, to our uh, our journeys into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, that tends to be teams that are defunct or previously located or domiciled. Uh, but we uh, certainly squint hard and try to uh, in, enlarge the circle of interest and intrigue for us. We get into some minor league stuff. We certainly get into some professional events that you know we're not league or team based. Uh, per se. Um, But one of the more fascinating topics uh, I'd like to sort of consider the gift that keeps on giving uh, is one that we uh, excitedly go back to this week. uh, And that's the Negro Leagues, the Negro Baseball Leagues in particular. Um, Obviously, we can get into uh, the the, the realm of basketball. That's certainly something we want to get into, like the Black Fives era, et cetera. But uh, Negro League Baseball is, um, in my mind, just endlessly fascinating, chock full of teams, uh, professional teams. Absolutely. And we'll get into that in our conversation. You'll see why in a minute, uh, if there's any debate, uh, that, you know, literally lived this, lived this, um, you know, this sort of, uh, parallel existence to major league baseball in the uh, first part of, uh, the latter century. And, um, the reasons for it are complex and, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, etched into our nation's fabric for better, for worse, certainly for the worse, I would argue, um, but, uh, the stories of the players that, and the managers and the, the owners and the other people involved, uh, in making Negro league baseball so powerful and so, uh, successful within, uh, the, the massive constraints, both culturally and, uh, uh, geographically and, and, and economically and otherwise in this country at that time, um, the, 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 the sheer joy of, the, of of many of these stories, certainly 
tragic ones, certainly challenging ones, certainly trying times for sure. But as uh, we'll get into our conversation this week with our very special guest, Don Rogerson, uh, the author of perhaps one of the a uh, very small group of, of essential, let's call it essential with a capital E books, uh, around the Negro Leagues. If you're just new to the topic uh, and you've never really sort of immersed yourself into uh, what this uh, Negro League uh, phenomenon was all about uh, in the, I guess it stretches from the, the late 1800s right on to, I guess, what you would generally call the uh, the beginnings of, of full-time Major League Baseball integration with Jackie Robinson and then some. The book is called Invisible Men, Life in Baseball's Negro Leagues. And uh, I would say uh, along, uh, along with um, uh, the Robert Peterson book, uh, Only the Ball Was White, probably the two, maybe there's one or two other ones that are most essential books to have sort of in your library, at the very least as a starter pack for your journeys into the Negro Leagues. And uh, and uh, the Invisible Men book um, came out in 1983. Don's original publishing of that was in 1983. It's been republished a couple of times. Uh, and that was about 10 years or so after uh, Robert Peterson's book. Uh, and these books are important for a bunch of different reasons. But before I get into why, um, the book Invisible Men is being reissued by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, stay tuned in a couple of moments. I'm going to give you a uh, an amazing discount, not only for this book, but everything available from the University of Nebraska Press. And those people who have listened to this show for a long period of time recognize that we have a ton of books that we have featured from the University of Nebraska Press. So get your uh, pens and uh, paper ready because we're going to have a, a special discount for you that you are going to benefit from tremendously. Stay tuned. Uh, but Invisible Men not only came out in 82, but is being reissued by um, uh, the University of Nebraska Press, a new uh, preface and and some some updates and stuff. Uh, it is it is a goldmine uh, of uh, of interest and um, of tales, literally of a lot of first person accounts of some of the players and uh, the managers and the people involved, the the folks who like Art Russ Jr. for example, the uh, the late uh, sportscaster, uh, New York City uh, and, and otherwise, but uh, before then, uh, the longtime sports editor of one of the uh, more notable uh, black uh, daily newspapers uh, out of New York, the uh, Amsterdam News. Um, but just great first and, you know, almost second person uh, recounts of uh, the ups, lots of ups, lots of good times, lots of great memories, lots of pride and the downs, certainly, uh, you know, circumstances economically and uh you know, ethically and, and, and racially and, you know, that we're certainly trying at, at the least and, and uh, you know, uh, just all in out difficult and hard uh, to overcome sometimes uh, uh, not being able to be overcome, uh, certainly on the negative side. But it is all of it is a fascinating part of the fabric of American sports, uh, American history, for sure, uh, baseball in particular. And what a vibrant uh, and uh, culturally rich uh, and amazing, and I think, frankly, largely still to this day under, uh, misunderstood uh, set of leagues uh, and teams and players and uh, and uh, people involved as to why they were playing and, and how and, and the messages that they were sending. Um, we get into all of that stuff and much, much more in this just tremendous conversation uh, with our guest this week, Don Rogerson. Again, the book is called Invisible Men, Life in Baseball's Negro Leagues. And the reason why this book and uh, and uh, Bob Peterson's Only the Ball Was White book uh, were uh, essential and still are, frankly, 
is I think a lot of people, especially this generation, maybe even a generation ago, uh, kind of really don't realize. I think many people kind of take for granted that uh, the Negro Leagues is just sort of culturally known and and understood, and, and you see plenty of garb and wear and the logos and uh, the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame in Kansas. I mean, you know, lots of there's a lot that's happened, but I think people need to remember that you know if you you were having this discussion, say in the mid 1990s or so, it's really important to recognize that uh, a lot of what was the story of the Negro Leagues was kind of, frankly, forgotten or glossed over or just not known to a mass of baseball and or sports fans, especially those not of an African-American uh, background or descent. Uh, and the um, the cultural uh, sort of force that sort of changed all that was, of course, Ken Burns' uh, uh, tremendous uh, and, uh, you know, historically uh, uh, prescient and, uh, and valuable uh, documentary series on PBS called Baseball. Um, and if you've not seen that, of course, you uh, need to see all nine or now 10 innings slash chapters worth. That's available out there on in streaming and, and sort of DVDs if you still have one of those. But um, these books, uh, the Peterson book and uh, Invisible Men by our, our guest Don Rogerson, really actually were very foundational uh, elements in the uh, creation of that documentary. And that is where, that documentary in particular, is where... Uh, people like Buck O'Neill and other Negro League stars uh, and uh, uh, champions uh, were really highlighted in depth uh, for uh, for the first time for a, a big generation of, of sports fans. And that legacy continues to grow and uh, and and more, frankly, into uh, a lot more things. So we, we talk about all of those sort of things, the inclusion of, of Negro League ballplayers in the Hall of Fame, that sort of checkered history. We get into a little bit of that with Don. Uh, we talk about the Major League Baseball current situation uh, just literally uh, two months ago, finally taking up the the exercise to figure out, and uh, do you really think that this is not going to be the case, were the Negro Leagues, uh, quote unquote, major league? Uh, and and from a statistical and um, a quality of play kind of assessment, uh, I think, frankly, it's safe to say it's kind of a foregone conclusion, but Whatever Major League Baseball and or the Hall of Fame, I guess, need to do uh, to kind of sort of cement that as uh, as the reality. But um, anyway, all of that stuff, this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, the book is uh, great. Uh, the conversation is uh, just as great. And uh, we uh, welcome you to it in uh, just a few moments time. All right. So let me uh, quickly promote this uh, thing here. So uh, this book, Invisible Men, published by uh, soon to be reissued in about a week or two by University of Nebraska Press. Uh, is uh, available uh, to you, uh, not only on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, you can buy it on Amazon, of course, but uh, get ready to write this down because we have a 50% off promo code for you when you order this book and any other Nebraska Press book from the website www.nebraskapress, all one word, nebraskapress.unl, U is an uncle, N is in Nancy, L is in Louise, okay, dot edu. That's triple dub dot Nebraska press dot unl dot edu. And then uh, just to any of the books that you buy and they want to use the promo code, you ready for it? Here it is. The promo code is six fall 20. The number six, the word fall, F A L L, and the number 20, six fall 20. 50%, that's five zero percent off all of your University of Nebraska press books. 
when, again, you go to the website, nebraskapress.unl.edu, and use the promo code, you already know it, don't you? Go ahead, say it out loud, 6 fall 20. Of course, Invisible Men should probably be top on your list, but as uh, uh, longtime listeners of the show, you'll know that um, we must have featured, I don't know, a good 20 to 25 authors and books uh, from some level of imprint of the University of Nebraska Press. So uh, if it's uh, the California Golden Seals book or, uh, I mean, it's just on and on and on. So I just just go there early and often, go back to all of our, our previous episodes and just search up the ones that are University of Nebraska, New University of Nebraska Press imprints, he says, and make sure that you uh, stock up now while the savings are good. It's only good until the end of October. So uh, as they say, visit early and visit often. And again, one last time, uh, you want to go to uh, the University of Nebraska Press site and you go into the ordering section and it'll take you all the way into the cart and that kind of stuff. And again, that website is nebraskapress.unl.edu. And uh, once you get into the cart, make sure you use the promo code 6FALL20 and you're going to get 50% off all of your University of Nebraska Press titles, including this week's uh, guest's book, Don Rogerson's Invisible Men, Life in Baseball's Negro League. So let's get into that conversation now, shall we? And uh, it is fascinating. You will enjoy it. I hope you will. And uh, as always, as I always say, please enjoy Before we kind of get into uh, the book and uh, what it represents and and what it is, uh, you know, frankly, uh, you know, uh, spun since uh, and uh, part of the bigger sort of tableau of the Negro Leagues and all, why don't you tell our audience uh, a little bit about your general background and then maybe we can skate into the original sort of uh, idea behind Invisible Men in the first place. And then we'll get into the story of like why, when and how and all that stuff. Well, uh, okay, I'll start with a bit of a sports illusion. A kid growing up in L.A. when the Dodgers came to Los Angeles. So baseball was something that you listened to under the pillow, right? And uh, But I went to uh, college at the University of California, Santa Cruz, first class. Very proud of that. And... Uh, Later, got a Ph.D. in American Studies at the University of Texas. The baseball side of it is that there was a course there uh, in the cultural, well, it was, a, it was called Sports in American Life, by a very popular professor named Al Hunt. Taught the course 300 students. I was a graduate student in the same American Studies department. Al got a very nice tenure-track job at SUNY Purchase, and a wonderful man and a mentor to me, Bill Getzman, put his arm around me and said, Don, you're the only boy that reads the sports page. You're teaching the course, because it was right as the semester was starting. So I had 300 students and a course that I would care about but could sort of, sort of design my own way. And I went to the Texas library, picked out some sports history books, and one was called Only the Ball Was White, which was the story of the Negro Leagues, a great book by a guy named Robert Peterson. And I, I talked about that book, but I read a story in the paper that a great Negro leaguer 
lived in Texas named Willie Wells, and I invited him to speak at my class, got to know him, and and sort of the rest is history. Um, I've made my career in public broadcasting, but in the course of my interest in the Black Leagues, I met a colleague, a, a guy setting out to make a film about the greatest team that might have ever existed, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, which was a Negro League team that now has six members in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, and that team was a very special team, and uh, Craig and I met at a reunion of, of Negro League players. I'm sorry, this is Craig? Davidson. His Got name it. is Craig Davidson. We met at uh, a reunion of Negro League players in Ashland, Kentucky, and he realized that as a filmmaker, he could make a better film if I was assisting him by asking some of the questions while he was doing the the directorial work. And we became friends and colleagues for now 50 years, essentially, made three films about the Negro Leagues, one we consider the classic, and and most people do, called There Was Always Sun Shining Someplace. Um, and, and I've had a great career out of my history with the Black Leagues, but professionally, I worked for public broadcasting and had a number of executive jobs with them around the country. So that's interesting. So you're almost able to kind of um, uh, blend uh, a bit of the career, but but intersect it uh, on a number of different levels and along the way uh, with this interest in not only uh, baseball generally, but the Negro Leagues specifically. It's almost, uh, you know, you, you could be able to sort of uh, you know, work to live and live to live to work, I guess, right? I've been blessed, period, <laughs> you know, because the topic was so important and the men were so special. And if you get a if you get to work on something like that, it's it's just tremendously satisfying. All right. Well, let's put this in. Let's put this in a contextual framework. Right. So uh, only the ball was white, a copy of which I'm holding uh, in my hands now, paperback version from, I believe it was uh, initially published in 1970. So when was this sort of discovery of this book uh, around your time at, in Santa Barbara? Uh, Santa Cruz. Santa, Santa Cruz, Cruz, excuse me, I apologize. Sorry. Yep. Uh, but, uh, That's okay. The Gauchos versus, what, so what's the, uh, sa what's Santa Cruz? We're the fighting slugs. We're the, the, the banana slugs. slugs. That's it. That's the more interesting one, actually, by the way, anyway. Despite being maybe a bit more picturesque, but that's even a relative statement. Uh, I digress. Uh, when was this? Uh, when did you discover this book? Was it when it was recently? When it just came out? Or it was on the shelves in the library. So it was about 1980, okay. 19 around 1980, well maybe 79. Um, but it was on the shelves at the university, and I picked it up, and it was it was fascinating, and of course. The civil rights movement, we had lived through that. We had watched that. And um, it was it was just a, an eye-opener completely. But it's for, for sure a seminal book, uh, Robert Peterson's book, right? And, um, you know, it, you stumbled across probably one of the better ones, right, to kind of root uh, not only your class, but perhaps a, a lifelong interest over time. Oh, oh, he was very, he was seminal because he was the first. And you see, he was a very nice person, okay? And I'll just, a little anecdote with, with my book was after it came out, 
because all of the people who cared about this topic cared about each other at that time, uh, he allowed me uh, uh, freely to publish his research on all the statistics on the team standings, which was at the back of the edition that first came out. Now, your book came out in 83, okay? So, uh, yes. frankly, most people, uh, the baseball intelligentsia, would, would sort of accord Invisible Man as, as uh, uh, not only a compliment, but probably in the, the, the small select quintile, I guess, of, of books that sort of define and or explain the Negro Leagues generally. So, so arguably, maybe not so arguably, you, your, your work actually kind of uh, took a, a, a nice spot next to, uh, to, to Peterson's book on the bookshelf, which is, is high praise, right? And Oh, yes. Well, I, what I would say, what I, what I did, and then Peterson actually wrote me a lovely note after the book came out, um, was I tried to put it in the context of American history. And argue that the black leagues were so important to the history of the, both the civil rights movement, but also the history of America, uh, and that it fit in there. Because at that time, during the, the heyday of the Negro Leagues, it was among the most important cultural institutions in black America. The papers followed it. The people, black people all over the country followed the teams. Um, they attracted huge crowds, and they were uh, just a pillar of life in black America at the time. What was your approach, though, right? Uh, Peterson's was more, I would argue, historical, certainly had statistics in the back of it, and uh, it was pretty even-keeled, I think. Uh, but it maybe a little bit of the sort of flavor of first-person narrative, but it feels to me like yours was, is, frankly, a little closer to uh, the people that were there, or at least people who were pretty close maybe to the people who were there. You know, uh, I wouldn't call it a second uh, voice, but perhaps, uh, you know, 1.5 uh, a generation away from actually well, being there. Pete, Pete Peterson was ahead a and for the groundbreaker. Another person who was really terrific in that time ahead of me was John Hallway, who collected the voices of the black players and wrote a a book that was full of, of anecdotes and stories from some of the greatest players. But what I tried to do was put it in its cultural context. So there was a chapter in my book called The Cult of Professionalism, because these players, they were professional ball players, and they were proud that they were professionals and took pride in their craft. And so I tried to 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 make that point essentially, um, I was lucky. I I made a radio series for NPR before then, um, where I got went around the country and interviewed Willie Wells, Buck Leonard, Ray Dandridge, all the all the great players of the sort of second wave of the Negro Leagues. In other words, guys who spent the vast majority of their career or all their careers in the Negro Leagues but weren't the guys who were there at the 1920s, um, the first couple years of the 1920s, although we got a few of them. Judy Johnson, who's now in the Hall of Fame, Dave Malarcher, who a, was, a, was a tremendous uh, person and figure, Jess Hubbard. So 
got a lot of stories from that period, but the bulk of our material was the 30s, which was the heyday of Satchel Page and Josh Gibson and people like that. I, I think it's important to also put this in context, too, because here we are in 2020, and uh, I, you know we're also really talking about a time, uh, both of these books, uh, the radio stuff that you're talking about, and, and, and as well as uh, all the other sort of stuff around it is is I, I wouldn't want to call it. Um, I, I'm trying to sort of c- create a, a divining line here, uh, and I think, frankly, that was and is uh, historically the uh, the legendary baseball series by Ken Burns on PBS back in the day, right? Uh, the the Negro Leagues almost sort of, frankly, I want to say were ignored, but uh, perhaps experienced a bit of a renaissance. Not only from your works, but but obviously that that documentary kind of almost was a, a revealing uh, a point in time, frankly, where uh, a lot of your stuff really came back, if you will, or or was more uh, looked upon in vogue to to really sort of open people's eyes to what this Negro League environment was all about. Well, one of the things I'm quite proud of is that I was an advisor to Ken. I know him. He commented on my book, actually. But I, I had known him through public broadcasting in a number of other contexts. And I, in fact, had read a very early draft of the of the series and was able to interact with him about his work, which, you know, Buck, Buck O'Neill, for example, became a, 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 the star of that show, that Absolutely. series. Absolutely. No question. The, the major figure... And then there were nine episodes, but the Negro League one was the most powerful one, which was due to both the power of the story and people like Buck O'Neill, but also Ken's filmmaking ability. But um, that that brought it to life. But Buck O'Neill was was one of the early people that I knew quite well. In fact, he he's appeared in all our films, and um, he 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 was a great. You know, he thrilled America, right? He was he was so articulate, he was so loving, he was so special. And the more you learn about Buck O'Neill, the more you realize his contributions to baseball. But I will tell you this, there were a number of other players of that period who were equally charming, articulate, sensitive people. And... So, uh, you know, we, we, of course, were all delighted with the notoriety that came to, to Buck. But um, we also want the world to know that there were, a, that, that that's the kind of guys, many of them were made by the Negro Leagues. Now, not everyone, of course, but, but a, a vast majority, because you couldn't stay in the leagues if you didn't care about your profession as a ball player. There was somebody waiting to take your job so you lived it you thought it you thought it through so why do you call it the cult of professionalism it one of the sources for my work was reading through the black newspapers there were two great black newspapers of the segregated era the pittsburgh courier and the chicago defender and they had sport pages and they had great sports writers and those guys would, would uh, so doing the research, 
you found that people like Rube Foster, for example, who's in the Hall of Fame, founded the league, insisted that the players would dress a certain way, that they would behave with a certain deportment at times. And so they were, they were now that's not, that doesn't mean they always did, of course, but there, there was a feeling that they had a standing within the community and they needed to represent the teams well that way. And so it occurred, you know, it, it just, it, it sort of hit me that there was a feeling about the experience that needed, that was worthy of its own chapter. Well, it also speaks to, um, I guess, even a subset of the quote-unquote Negro League story and history and tableau, right? Which is literally the professional leagues, plural, <laughs> uh, and, you know, there were certainly many escapades in terms of, of standing up various leagues, um, which I think is almost timely, not only because your your book is coming out within mere days of when we record this or re uh, reissued, uh, with a lovely new cover uh, featuring that uh, uh, a, a, a great uh, look of, of one of those classic buses that you see in a lot of the the uh, the photography of some of these these sort of traveling and we'll talk about some of the traveling circumstances I guess in a few minutes but um, the, the the Major League Baseball is is only now in I guess in August of this year uh, I guess taking up uh, I don't know if it was within in uh, a partnership with uh, uh, the Hall of Fame or whatever, but it seems to be seriously taking up for the first time the the exploration of whether the Negro Leagues of prof in professional uh, the professional component of that were actually quote unquote major leagues. I, look, I think I'll inject my opinion here. Why not? It's my show. Uh, it, it's it's hard to believe that they could not be considered major leagues at, at this at this point in in time. But but it seems to be. I guess still a question in baseball historian circles. I, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it's an important distinction. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair question, a lovely topic, essentially for discussion, Hotstove League, and every other kind of discussion. Um, the best players in the Negro Leagues were every bit equal to the best players. In the major leagues, that's that's clear. Um, the teams overall, when they played against white teams, did extraordinarily well, because you know the the, the actual history of this is in fact that in the nineteen early nineteen twenties, the black teams would sometimes play against all white major league teams. And they did very well. It was well documented. And Commissioner Landis in 1923, I believe it was, came in and basically made the rule that no intact major league team could play against an intact black team. Because, because of, why? Because, of course, the, 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 the equality of human beings would be apparent. But, but, also, you know, I, but also, I suspect, too, even more acutely, sort of the uh not only that but but the um I, I don't know adding or aiding legitimacy so to speak to the to those leagues and that they were yeah, absolutely correct yeah. yes exactly and so that that's a really important uh point that that sort of 
gives the, the stature of the league, make, makes them important. That's not something that I often impine on, um, because the statistics are very hard to 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 compare. You know, the quality of teams, the experiences, etc. And I don't think we need it necessarily to value the Negro Leagues for what they were, which was just these important institutions with the greatest athletes of the time. Remember today, you know, we have so many different sports and black people are represented in so many of them, gymnastics and not to speak of, you know, basketball and football and all that. But in the heyday of the Negro Leagues, the best black athletes automatically were in the went to the Negro League. So you can, and, and everybody else, and there were other guys wanting their jobs. So, so that's where I end up, up focusing. It's a worthwhile, today the, the other argument that I would make that's so contemporary, I think, is that these men made, made something of their lives. You know, they enjoyed life. They were special people. And I hope I hope the lesson that you that whatever hardships these people had, they found beauty and experience and richness. Uh, that's something that I wanted to say. The reason my book is coming out now, frankly, is because after all these years, I wanted not just the great new cover, which I'm glad you appreciate because they did a beautiful job with it, but the fact that I wanted to reflect on how far this story has come in American culture. You know, the only people that most baseball people had heard of was, they first heard, of course, the Jackie Robinson story. Very important. Didn't really quite know that Jackie Robinson was a Negro leaguer for a while there. But everybody focused on the Jackie Robinson story for all the right reasons. And then they focused on the great personality of Satchel Paige. And these two men became kind of the figures that everybody ended up focusing on. But there was Buck Leonard, there was Willie Wells, there was Monty Irvin, there was Dandridge. You know, there were these great, great figures, many of them now in the Hall of Fame, but some not, who were just, just, uh, important figures in the history of their sport, for sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I, the cultural uh, component of this, right, I, the narrative, right, it becomes that much more important, right? So it, it, even if Major League Baseball is, you know, once and for all, maybe going down the statistical verification path, so to speak, right? I argue that that can't hurt at all because that, that only further legitimize and or raise up what, you know, most scholars and, and, and students of this would recognize as, uh, objectively professional from 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 the get go, but uh, I, but the stories do matter. Like oh, for example, we had, and I think obviously those stories, the closer those stories uh, can be found from you know as close to first person as possible, or at least uh, familial, or or people who knew the people directly involved. And obviously, as the years roll on, those become less and less. Uh, but we had a really great conversation as an example. Uh, about a year ago, with uh, with Byron Motley, who's the the son of, um, you know, one of the uh, uh, more uh, 
uh, a, a colorful, uh, you know, uh, umpires of the game, Bob Motley. Famous and, man, yeah. Yeah, and, and, but, but, you know, to, to hear the story through his son's uh, eyes and, and voice, right? And, and the story was, was basically a recount of the many conversations that he had with his dad. And, and, and that's, you know, you, that's not statistics. That's not like, you know, was this guy better than that guy and hot stove and all and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's his, that's a real story. And, and not just about baseball and like why and how you got to play and what the competition was like and how you traveled and, you know, how you dealt with races, all that stuff. Right. But it's also to your point, right. How people were like living their lives. Right. Because what I've heard, by the way, I've heard this through all kinds of sports uh, conversations we've had, not just baseball, not just black baseball, but the privilege people felt or the, the pride they felt to be able to play the game. And, oh, by the way, make maybe even make a few bucks at it, too, maybe guiltily or maybe not. But they got to play the game almost as either not of the, the, their full career. At least they got to play it as an excuse to work. Uh, they just regaled in that. Right. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, one of the pleasures for me, I sometimes talk to younger people about this story, younger black people, younger white people at colleges, whatever. And they always want to know, well, what, what did, how do these guys deal with segregation? And I get to answer, I say, well, and I know this firsthand is they say, well, of course they, you know, were vehement of what an injustice it was. They were angry, but they also had the satisfaction. If you're a young man, you hit a home run in a key game. You're the try. You're the pride of your town. People talk about you. You know, you get your chest out walking down the street. They had all those things too. So they had a. They had the balance of 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 that. And that made them better men, I think, and it certainly enriched their lives in a really deep way. In your, uh, as you sort of went back into the story, I mean, I, I guess what I'm really intrigued by and wish I could sort of dial the Wayback Machine and kind of just plop myself into the middle of is how these guys lived life, right, let alone play baseball, right? So... I'm there, there's there's great stories and things to be learned just on how they were able to navigate playing, let's agree, professional baseball as a black American and in in uh, still a racially segregated society, uh, you know, and all those kinds of things. But then but also then juxtaposing that with just being a black American generally, right? Not just being a, a, a player of sports. Um, I, just the life stories part of it seems to be maybe almost the adjunct that maybe you're using to sort of tell your part of this uh, Negro League story. Fair, fair. And what 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 this, the trajectory was often a Southern kid who loved baseball and had ability in it. Often, for example, in the case of Buck O'Neill, his father telling him, you know, son, you got to go somewhere else. You can't get what what you what you want in life and ser- working in a celery field in Sarasota, Florida. 
you know, you have to go grab life, go off and play. Or they would be on a team in the South. Uh, the, the Negro League teams trained in the South. The baseball season wouldn't start until, until almost May 1st. But they'd be training in April, a little bit of March, in southern cities in Florida, sometimes Arkansas, Texas, and they would they but they needed money, so they would play exhibition games against very good black local teams, and let's say you were a tremendous player with talent, and one of these teams playing against a Negro League team coming through Hot Springs, Arkansas. And suddenly they saw you and said, well, kid, you got that ability. Why don't, why don't you come with us? You know, you can, we need an extra guy. Come with, come with us. And so a, a person would be plucked out of the South. Now, in the 1940s, there were many more blacks in the North. So, so there were blacks from the North, but the majority of Negro Leaguers were from the South. And they made it, but the the games were played in the north. The teams were mostly in the north, and so here's the the almost the archetypal story of up from the south to the north. You know, Chicago, which had the east-west game, was the mecca for blacks all over America. The blacks from North Carolina or South Carolina might end up in New York or Philadelphia, but but Chicago was a magnet for almost everything else. And and so these guys would, or in Kansas City too, Kansas City Monarch team, of course, was the, of the two greatest Negro League teams, probably the Kansas City Monarchs, and for a very short period, the Pittsburgh Crawfords. How were these players... Um treated in the black community, right? So the, I, it doesn't go lost on me that the title of the book is Invisible Men, right? So in a segregated society, white majority, if you will, in terms of this population, may, probably so, uh, you know, not sort of knowing some of the great exploits and, and uh, athletic prowess of these these players and a huge loss, right? Because you're not, you know, not getting to see these players day in, day out, like you you might know on the on the white baseball side of things. But um, my sense is, and uh, from what I've, I've read and not only your book, but elsewhere is that, you know, within the black community that these baseball players were, I used the word earlier revered, but, uh, they were, you know, they were, they were, they were high on pedestal. No. Yes, that's, that's correct. And then the point there was, you know, the newspapers of course followed them. So the black community did read those papers the games were well attended because, for example, they'd often play on Thursdays, which was frequently like a, a day off for a lot of domestic workers. And on Saturdays, and they'd play doubleheaders and things like that. So it was a huge entertainment, affordable entertainment within the black community. And probably the most important of them all, actually, I mean, when you see the pictures of a crowd of 50,000 people at a game at Comiskey Park, you know, or they'd play uh, doubleheaders in Yankee stadiums when the Yankee were the Yankees were out of town, and then 30,000 people were there, and most of them were black, not all of them, but most were. 
So they were known and they were, you know, they were celebrities. They were the, you know, Alex Rodriguez and people like that and Derek Jeter of their times for their cult, for their community. So give, give me a sense of uh, the major leagues uh, in uh, under the umbrella of Negro League Baseball, right? So th- there were a number of them, largely, you know, 1920 and onward, uh, and obviously, you know, kind of whimpering uh, down in the in the mid fifties by the time uh, integration uh, occurred, but 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 that, that that period of time, that good you know thirty years or so, there were a handful of leagues, uh, and obviously things like the Negro World Series, and you mentioned earlier the uh, the East West All Star Game, which was a fixture uh, for much of that time in, at at the old Comiskey Park in Chicago. Um, were there any leagues of of on the major league side, or that would we you know inarguably considered to be major league that were either stand out or better or, or, or more of a story uh, than any of them. Uh, and, or, I mean, you're mentioning some of the teams like the Crawfords and the, the Monarchs and we could talk about the the grays. I mean, there's so many, um, or did it not even really matter? Right. Cause I, and I guess I'll sort of throw in this other little uh, curveball. Um, you know, there's also the barnstorming component of Negro league baseball, right. Which, Sort of danced. Very important. Yeah, Very danced important. in and out of the professional leagues thing, right? But, Which yeah, no, because historically, first of all, all ball players, black, white, were not well paid in this period. Okay, so money mattered, and they and they needed to work when the season was over. The very best ball players, white or black, could go to first Cuba, and, and then later. Mexico, Puerto Rico, even Venezuela, Panama, and pick up money in the winter seasons a bit. But basically, barnstorming, the season was from May till the, you know, into September. October was barnstorming, and they'd pick up money. So in the 30s, Dizzy Dean, white, you know, famous pitcher, would would barnstorm and he played a number of exhibition games where Satchel Page pitched against him, and they got huge crowds. In the 1940s, Bob Fellers did the same things. So the white players knew plenty about the quality of the black players and vice versa. Negro League guys told me, you know, on their off days sometimes they could go. They would, you know, Willie Wells told me he would sit in segregated park in Sportsman's Park in St. Louis but watch the the white games there. So, you know, there was a lot of interaction, and the barnstorming games were very important. Barnstorming, the Midwest loved baseball, uh, Nebraska and, you know, all the cities around Wichita, around Kansas City, etc. But they'd play up and into Canada. Let's not forget our Canadian friends. They'd play into Canada, too. So there was a huge interest in Canada. But then there was also a thing called the California Winter League in L.A. because L.A. was burgeoning. And there was an all-black team out in California, which was made of black all-stars. The guys that were creating the team would pull together the best black talent. But there'd also be the white talent out there. So you had situations where the great players and the players coming up, like Joe DiMaggio and people like that, did know plenty about the black players, their quality and experience. And and it's a very 
of course, when I was doing the interviews, the racial situation had changed enough that that white players would never disparage the black players. But I got the feeling that many of the white players had enormous respect for the black players that they played and knew. And I'm talking about people like Stan Musial and people like that who, you know, would tell stories about playing in these exhibition games against the black players. Now, they didn't go off and drink and socialize and party, but there was genuine respect as ballplayers, clearly. Well, it's also interesting, too. I mean, besides the sort of barnstorming part of the fabric, right, Uh, dancing in and out of the actual professional leagues themselves, you also had this, I mean, and I found this most eye-opening, right, Is was also this, uh, not unlike the, the uh, organized baseball side of it, uh, this uh, patchwork, frankly, of uh, Negro minor leagues, too, uh, almost trying to essentially replicate, I guess, the feeder system that the uh, the, the, the white-dominated uh, uh, organized baseball structure had. I, I get the sense that those are a little bit more, I won't call them ragtag, but a little bit more but that said, now we've had some other conversations where some of those leagues were uh, pretty solid uh, for periods of time, and and like the Negro Southern League, for example. That's true, um, and especially the Negro Southern League. I'd say that was by far the most important of them, and and the reason was because those cities now, Atlanta, people like that, you know, uh, some of the Alabama cities, were growing, and had black populations with some money who could pay to go to a ball game and and baseball was the entertainment remember you know the south but not much air conditioning <laughs> no television um you you're talking about what do people enjoy and love texas had their variants of that too so they were important but they were always secondary to the established Negro Leagues. Late in the game, the Birmingham actually got a team in one of those leagues, so where Willie Mays came up. Willie Mays comes up with the Birmingham Black Barons. I love in the book you uh, you also uh, interview, and this is obviously done in the late 70s, early 80s, right, in terms of the time yes. of these interviews. So uh, there's uh, some good quotes in there from um, uh, legendary. I knew him more as a radio uh, sports guy in New York, but uh, prior to that, uh, a legendary sports writer for the Amsterdam News, Art Russ Jr., um, you know, who I, it's a really good example of, of you know, the, the the beat writers, right, who actually covered these games and guys, uh, frankly, are probably the best people to- They were marvelous. Frame the narrative. They were articulate writers, but they were journalists, you know, and, and journalists of that period and good ones. And so they were fun. He he was a very good, good man, and uh, really good. Yeah, really good. Well, give me a sense then of some of the names. So you you say Invisible Men right as the title, right? So and you mentioned some of the obvious names. Who are maybe some of the less obvious names that you think are unheralded or or and maybe not in the Hall of Fame, maybe because they didn't stand out maybe as a player, but but were more either emblematic of the story. Thank, or, thank you for asking this question. stood out otherwise. I thank you because I have something I want to say on that regard. I have been asked a number of times, you know, who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, 
John John Hallway led the fight to get more people in the Hall of Fame. So originally, you may know that the original plan was to have a separate but unequal little exhibit area in the Hall of Fame for some of the Black Bay layers. Fortunately, that was not acceptable by 1970 when Satchel Page was going in. But the original committee got together and named, I believe, nine people as the original class into the Hall of Fame. And baseball thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's it. That's enough. And then the research started, and then the voices started, and John Holloway led it. And I'm pleased to say that, for example, when Hilton Smith, who definitely deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, many people said, told me, you know, Satchel Page was more flamboyant, but they thought sometimes Hilton, Hilton Smith was a better pitcher. Maybe in some years he was, maybe he wasn't. But he deserved it, and, and I, I sent my tape with Hilton to the Baseball Hall of Fame. So I've often been asked, who's now not in the Hall of Fame that deserves to be in? And I can honestly say there's only one person that I feel extremely strongly about, and that is the second baseman of the Kansas City Monarchs named Newt Allen. Okay? And the reason I say that is as second basemen go within the history of the Negro Leagues, I can't find anybody that I could compare to him in terms of reputation. And a number of the people that played with him kept telling me he's the best second baseman. And I think a little bit of the reason that he's not in is he was from the Midwest, Kansas City. Um, and and he wasn't... I, got, I did interview him at his home. Lovely human being. But I, I think he sort of got got lost in the shuffle of everybody comparing this and that. And so that would be that would be one of the people I would mention most strongly. Um, of the people I know, there, there are numbers that are in the Hall of Fame, but maybe never have risen now to the, the level they should be um, considered. Um, I think most people today consider Oscar Charleston the greatest Negro leaguer of them all, and he's beginning to get his fair due. Um, I I know a lot of the players told me who had got in in the first class told me that Willie Wells needed to be in, and he eventually did get in. A number of these guys got in only after they had passed away, so. Uh, but Willie Wales' daughter, for example, told me that she knew, Willie knew that someday he would be in the Hall of Fame. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there, there are guys who didn't get it, but at least, at least the hall, because the Hall of Fame is the symbol of everything uh, in, in terms of achievement almost, it's good that they've expanded it. And Newt's the only one that, you know, I can just honestly testify I know I know belongs in. Um, so that's that, that. But that's my opinion. What was it about 1971 that the the hall finally came to their senses and, and, and recognized that they had to, you know, en masse, you know, start to recognize them as full fledged and then 
you know, move the needle. What, what was was Peterson's book part of that, perhaps, or, or Peterson's book was part of it, I think, for sure. I think the times were right. Remember, the civil rights movement wasn't that far away. Um, the civil rights bill and voting rights through LBJ and wasn't that far away. I think Bowie Kuhn was a responsible person in that regard. He took pride in it. He was he was a figure of his own time, but I think he was aware that it needed to be done. But I also think the black community was starting to to push a little bit. There were there was the cultural front. You see, Jackie, the story of Jackie Robinson sucked all the air out of the thought for a long time. And Jackie deserves everything. But I think it didn't recognize that the role of the Negro Leagues had played for Jackie Robinson. And I also think that something that was very unfair about the Jackie Robinson story, I still think it's unfair, is the implication was, oh, Jackie was this special guy. He could take it. He's, he, he's you know, the, the Branch Rickey white guy, dead, you know, blessing the, the person. Are, are you strong enough to take it? Well, some guys couldn't take it, and probably other ones could. Um, and the fact was that in 1947, 46, when Jackie came up, there was a plethora of players who were major league outstanding players. Um, but, the, you know, it trickled in. It didn't come in all at once. Okay, but on terms of a personal level, people like Buck O'Neill, Buck Leonard, these people were were smart and, and articulate and, and de- you know, very decent guys. And they sort of got lost in the complete story, Roy Campanella, until a certain amount of time had passed. So who else, uh, besides Hall of Fame conjecture and, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, abilities that, that would uh, allow them, you know, to, to be selected? By the way, Effa Manley, not, not a male, by the way, it's, that's... Yeah, she was great. Another story too. She was a key figure for me, by the way. Okay, how so? Because we've had a couple of conversations around her. Obviously, uh, unique on a lot of different fronts for this. She she was special. Okay, um, she cared about the players. She had dynamite personality, right? And so she and she loved the Nurk Eagles. And the players who were on the New York Eagles, Money Irvin, Ray Dandridge, Willie Wells, Larry Doby. But when I interviewed her, she wanted the full story to get out. And her version of the story was the one that I came to believe, which was, which was this, that integration of baseball was coming. There was, you know, Art Art Carter, for example, gave me the photo. You know, he's good enough for the if he's good enough for the Navy, he's good enough for the majors. Um, Chet Brewer, you know, a one arm. How do you think we feel when a one armed white guy, Pete Gray, with no prejudice, 
is in the major leagues and we're not, right? So, and plus there was tremendous agitation by progressives of all sorts in New York where there were three teams. So integration was coming. And the smart people in baseball, everybody knew it. But Commissioner Landis was the uh, holdup. Bill Vec tells the story that he was going to put Negro, he, and he knew, he knew. He was very close. Abe Stapperstein, who was the Globetrotter guy, but also the, the traveling secretary with the Chicago American Giants at one time, knew the black players and knew how to get a team in and was even talking about putting a all-black team in uh, in 1942. So it was in the air. But what Effa Manley did say was that when integration came, Branch Rickey did not buy the contracts of the Negro League players, did not buy into that story at all. Yes, they were. Uh, they had some shady business deals, and he used it. Um, but it suddenly became the Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson story. And Effa felt a little bit put out because Jackie Robinson never really embraced the Negro League story. Because, of course, for him, it was hard. The bus rides he didn't like. The travel was difficult. Um, he had grown up in L.A. He had gone to UCLA. He had lived a very different life. Although, on another project, I, I was in the home of his older brother, who was in the Olympics in 1936. So, you know, he and had a, a marvelous mother who probably was a saint with those two young men. But but the fact of the matter is, Jackie Robinson never embraced the Negro League story, and and that was unfortunate in my opinion. And she was upset about that. She was genuinely felt it didn't give due to some of the other players. Well, okay, and that, that was where my question was going. So besides the on-field play and Hall of Fame caliber conversation and worthiness of inclusion and all that stuff, are there any names that stand out, stood out uh, as, you know, having, you know, less to do about sort of the quality of play and Hall of Fame material versus, you know, just great story or emblematic or or otherwise uh, significant to this overall story or, or an every man that sort of embodied, you know, uh, the, the narrative that you're 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 putting. Well, there's a couple. I mean, Pat Patterson, for example, uh, was was a, a very good player, but not a great player. But he was down in the Dominican Republic when <laughs> Satchel Page brought the team down there in 1937, and that could be a whole nother program for you. But Pat Patterson went on to become a leading educator in Houston, did fantastic work uh, as an educator and a um, person who brought up black you know, youth in the city of Houston. Um, Chet Brewer was a marvelous uh, raconteur. Of course, Buck Leonard, uh, Buck, I'm sorry, Buck Leonard was also an equally great person, by the way. But Buck O'Neill, I think, deserves to be in, in the Hall of Fame just for the, you know, he, he wanted to be in the Hall of Fame 
strictly on the statistics, he's close but not enough, maybe. But for what he did as a coach with Bernie Williams, you keep hearing stories, uh, Lou Brock, the people that he helped discover and stood as a role model for and brought into baseball and was then the first black coach within the major leagues, he deserves, you know, the accolades that that were heaped on him sort of in the press, but never within the baseball world to the degree that he deserved. Well, maybe even maybe even an unwitting uh, ambassador, so to speak, given his uh, exposure yes. to the baseball series, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and then now they're, they're putting in people for all sorts of things. EFA, of course, was great and deserved to be in there as a, an important person to show that the, the, you know, the female component was, was there. They loved the ball players. They loved the games. They came to the games, they dressed for the games, etc., And they followed the games. And uh, so there, there's that whole dimension as well. Okay. I hear let's, as we sort of maybe round round here, uh, we could go for, for hours on, on all this, but this, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, sort of a, scene set for, you know, another angle, frankly, of, of the whole Negro League baseball story. What, what um, I guess there's sort of two main questions that I have, I guess, sort of uh, to kind of still uh, throw out there. Number one is, uh, why did it uh, take uh, a, you know, a massive documentary to kind of inject perhaps, or maybe even for the first time generationally uh, um, you know, inform people about these Negro leagues and the not only his, uh, the importance of it to the history of baseball, but the cultural significance. Like, why was it? And, and I know I'm sort of projecting this, but it, it feels like it was relatively dormant uh, a topic until and around then. Uh, and obviously, your your book and 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 Peterson's book certainly you know stoked or began sort of the the flames of that, but. Why did it take, I guess, that sort of uh, media phenomenon to kind of put it on people's radars, perhaps for the first time? You're, you're, you're part of it because the power of the media is so strong and the power of the visual media is so strong. And the, 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 when you see something, you kind of know it. I think the Greek word for to know comes from seeing or something. So Ken, as the skillful filmmaker, artist that he was, wove this story, but it was the right time. You know, now we have so many channels, so many choices, but at that time, the whole country picked it up, and Ken was building on the Civil War story, which nobody expected either, right? But he had, he had a real nose for the right person and the right interviewing and he, he and Lynn Novak. And so, you know, it, it sort of exploded, but I think it was already percolating a bit. The, you know, the, the, the fire was burning, but, but he, he made it a flame. So the other question then I would say is, uh, you know, obviously this is the now third uh, version of your, of your book. So it's kind of our, hopefully the <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving, although I know authors <laughs> would certainly argue otherwise someday, especially these days. But let's hope. We, yeah, we, yeah, okay. Yeah, well. No comment. No, well, <laughs> I, we, we, hopefully we can get no. a couple extra books sold, but, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, be able to yeah. see, retire on that. But um, 
what's left, I guess, to tell about, uh, you know, this sort of multi-flavored and multi-layered story, right? The I'm happy to say that. Yeah. I'm happy this is a good one, okay? Because, um, first of all, Peterson's book came out, then John Hallway's, then Invisible Man. So we were kind of, I, w- I like to think we're laying the groundwork, and that's why the new edition came out, because I was trying to put it in historic perspective. But since then, and early on, Janet Bruce wrote the best account of the Kansas City Monarch team, and other people now have done almost every team has have a book about them. The group within Sabre has a Negro League committee doing even more research. That's great. My colleague Craig, Craig Davidson and I have just finished, actually, a film called Island of Baseball, where we were down in Cuba because the Negro Leaguers who were down in Cuba from the night, actually from 1906 on, were, uh, when Rube Foster was down there as a pitcher, were very much a part of the story of baseball in Cuba. And Cuba was the most important place for baseball for whites and blacks for many, many years until really the end of the Castro, until Castro came in. So you're talking from from the turn of the century to 1960. So we made a film about that. We were at the home of Martin de Higo's son in a little town in the backwater of Cuba. So the, the, the relationship between black Americans and baseball in the Caribbean major Puerto Rico, uh, Venezuela, Panama. If you look at, you know, uh, Tony Perez's son, Eduardo, who's a wonderful announcer, but he he gets the flavor of that because he knows that it's in his roots. That story, that's a great story. The one left to be done, I think, is the story of Mexico. Because in the 1940s, the great black players were in Mexico. Because the Mexican, there was a, a family who ran baseball in Mexico who set out to beat the beat the major leagues, and and the white major leaguers went. Some of them, Whitey Ford, people like that, went to Mexico. But so did the best black players, and that's the final chapter, I think, of what Craig and I are, are going to work on. But that's that's one that hasn't quite been told fully. When is that uh, the first one come out, and when do you think you're working on that second one? Well, Island of Baseball uh, will pre- is premiering at the Harlem Film Festival. Unfortunately, because of the virus, it's it's virtual, um, uh, imminently, and we're very excited about that. So it's done, and it'll be out there for the world uh, at any time. Really, that's 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 imminent. The other one is our dream, but we have a lot of material collected. My colleague has, we've done interviews in Mexico, and uh, we have tremendous uh, first-person accounts from the players we did because we always asked them about their Cuban, well, their entire Caribbean and Mexico experiences. So we have that material, too, and hopefully we'll get to make that film as well. All right, and let's slide into home where we kind of started. That's where the batter usually starts before hitting that home run to actually go around the circle and come back home. Uh, okay, yeah. What do you think happens uh, with Major League Baseball and their 
their, you know, renewed effort to, um, you know, uh, determine, uh, quote unquote, major league status for the Negro leagues. What, what, what's your, what's your prognostication, and and what do you think comes from that, if and when, it indeed, like, how do you think that plays out? You know, I, I hate to be. I have to pass on that because I don't. I don't know where it will go. I think. I think the important thing is that the story of the Negro Leagues gets embedded in American history and the story of America. Um, I, for myself, I don't. I. I that's not an issue that I feel I'm competent to even argue about. Because, for example, in this little article, not article, in the new introduction that I wrote for my book, which I cared very much about, and I wanted to put my opinions out, but the very last part of it, I just say, okay, what would I think about? What would my Negro League people who talk to me think about baseball today? And I said, well, they they wouldn't they wouldn't think much of the shift because if you couldn't get a hit, you know, if you couldn't control your bat to get a hit, you couldn't play in the Negro Leagues. I, that I that I believe. Okay. Um, they, they but Willie Wells once I asked Willie Wells once I said Willie, what do you think about all the money these guys are making? And he said, Don, do, do you ever know anybody who was who got paid more than, than the boss thought he was worth. So they wouldn't begrudge the money and they'd love the game. And I'm not sure that, that that would mean as much to them as the fact that their story was recognized in general and that their greatest players were acknowledged as the great players they were, but I'm not really good to, to say about that fight. That's another dog's fight. No, no, I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I guess yeah. I guess I was trying to get at is 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 not sort of like okay, it was this sort of major league quality and the statistics and all that stuff, but 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 on the on the cultural front, right? It almost feels to me like major league baseball has to go through this exercise, arguably overdue, to kind of I square fair a piece fair. of this. That's right? a good point. Not unlike the Hall of Fame did in the early seventies or started to. Fair. No, it's fair. And the the people at the Hall of Fame, I do think, understand that. And I think they're trying to do it. And I think some of the players really get it, too. You know, they make the connection to the to the Negro League players. Hey, these guys were were kind of like us. And, and that's so that's true. But I think that's a, your your. Your comment is is right right that way. Well, look, this I, I this Don, this has been tremendous. Um, I uh, we could like I said, we could go for for weeks on this. I you know, if there are other topics over time, well, let's get this one out there in the ether first, right? For sure. Uh, hopefully, this will help me uh, promote a bit on the uh, on the debut of the film and obviously the reissue of the book and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, and the new the new introduction matters to me because at this point in in my age and life. I kind of wanted to try to sum it up. So that was the push, too, to join with that year. No, that's great. The 100th anniversary year. 
Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I, the uh, the other thing though too is that if they're if they're uh, you know I'll sort of have a little standing offer here, right? If there are, you know, if there is a particular story that you think could be, you know, worthy of its own you know conversation uh, that sort of that sort of sparks uh, interest or whatever, I you know I'm certainly happy to consider uh, some other topics and stuff. I you know one of the things that when we started this little show. We kind of started sort of focusing on teams and then the leagues as well that, you know, are no longer around for whatever reasons. Um, and we've we've chipped away at, at a bunch of uh, Negro League teams. I mean, the Monarchs and uh, and the Eagles and uh, and the Grays a couple of times. And, and, you know, there's a lot of – but there's plenty more still. Like, uh, you know, we had the Baccarat Giants we talked about. I, but, you know, we haven't done the Clowns yet. We haven't done the ABCs yet. We haven't done the – the Birmingham Black Bear, you know, so there's a lot of, um, and by the way, they don't have to be just teams, right? We've done Oscar Charleston. There's lots of angles and stuff. Some of them, some of those are obvious and 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 well researched or sought after, right? But there's probably also a hefty bunch that, um, you know, the the Dayton Triangle. I mean, this was a ton, right? That that just, you know, maybe haven't. Absolutely. And, yeah. So if there are ones, or frankly, other folks that you think might, uh, we certainly are, are eager and happy to kind of sort of fill out the compliment and uh, try to, you know, we're aiming for completism, I guess, here. No, no, I, I think it's great that we're getting a chance, I'm getting a chance to talk about this because I love talking about it. All right, our thanks to Don. Tremendous conversation. Uh, and again, the book is called Invisible Men, it is being reissued by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, it originally came out in 1982, but it is as seminal as it was the day it was originally published. Uh, the subtitle, Life in Baseball's Negro Leagues. Uh, you will, introduction by Monty Irvin, you will enjoy this book thoroughly. And uh, whether you're a, uh, an aficionado of the Negro Leagues or new to them, uh, this is a, uh, an essential book uh, to have in your library. Should you like to add it, to your library. A reminder that there is a tremendous discount uh, and sale going on at the University of Nebraska Press, the uh, the publisher of not only this book, but a ton of other books that we have featured on this show. And if you've been reluctant or uh, not been able to sort of, uh, I guess, afford uh, the full prices for these books, um, or for whatever reasons, just forgot to, to buy them uh, during our previous episodes, here's a, a perfect excuse once again uh, and that is, again, to go to the University of Nebraska Press website and use this promo code that I'm going to give you. The, the site is nebraskapress.unl.edu. And uh, the promo code, once you get into the cart, is 6FALL20. The number 6, the letter FALL, and the number 20, 6FALL20. And you're going to get 50, 50% off all of the titles uh, that you have in your cart there. And uh, again, it lasts until... The end of October, I want to say the 30th or the 31st. Why wait? Just do it now and you won't have to worry about when it expires now. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, that film clip that you heard at the beginning of the show, I'm sorry I didn't uh, mention it earlier, uh, is also uh, a, a production uh, of our pal Don. Uh, and it was called There Was Always Sun Shining Someplace. Uh, it is uh, freely and widely available on YouTube. Uh, it is a uh, uh, it's an award-winning uh, I guess you'd call it a short, short subject documentary, and frankly predates uh, uh, the baseball series by Ken Burns, of course, uh, by a number of years, and and gives you some sense of what uh, the understanding of the Negro Leagues was in popular culture before that supernova 
cultural event that was uh, the baseball series. Obviously, uh, worth seeking out in its own right if you've never seen baseball. Shame on you. Uh, and one last thing we also want to promote for Don is, and we kind of alluded to it a couple of times in the in the uh, in the discussion, a new documentary that uh, Don is uh, part of uh, that just uh, debuted, uh, world premiered at the uh, just completed Harlem International Film Festival. It's called Island of Baseball, and uh, it is uh, directed by uh, Craig Davidson, uh, and it's really uh, focused on the role that Cuba had in breaking the race barrier in the major leagues and obviously the Negro Leagues uh, part and parcel uh, of that. And um, at some point, we'll hopefully get a chance to uh, uh, talk with Don again and maybe uh, and Craig, too, perhaps. And we'll delve into sort of the uh, the Cuba thing. Uh, you, you know that uh, we've had a couple of episodes that have touched on Cuba in baseball's history as well. Uh, you can search those up on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, or frankly, the easiest route is just whatever uh, podcatcher or service that you use, just to click on the subscribe link. That's the easiest way. This is the way you're going to know uh, every single stinking episode that we put out every Monday night, every mo- Monday morning, excuse me, very early Monday morning, very tired, usually on Monday, Monday uh, afternoon, Monday evening, because I get up so early to get this uh, show lovingly crafted and out there into the ether for you. But uh, obviously, subscribe wherever you like to subscribe. Uh, hey, give us a few uh, likes, if you will, a couple of five-star reviews, all that kind of good stuff. Help other people discover this show if you like what you heard. And uh, But on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you'll see them all there for you, too. So you can just stream them if you'd like or uh, grab them and embed them on your website, whatever you want to do with them. Uh, and uh, there are just, you know, over 180 shows and counting. Uh, also, that's the place where you can find all of our social media feeds. You can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, there's a Facebook page devoted to us. Uh, whatever your means of, uh, of following us, by all means, do so and uh, join the uh, the hearty but growing uh, club of, of such uh, folks that are doing so. We appreciate it and always like to hear your shout outs and stuff. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, our email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And if you'd like to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, it's a uh, our little tip sheet we kind of send out hours before, maybe even a day or two before uh, we send out every episode. You'll be sort of in the know a little bit earlier than the, the hoi polloi, by all means. Just uh, search on the website. I think it's on the follow section, some section there. Uh, you'll see a box there just for your email uh, address. And I think your name as well. And uh, we'll uh, whisk you away to the, to the list and uh, away you and we will go. Uh, one last uh, moment, of course, of thanks to our pal Jerry Payne. Uh, who brought the pain this week with his uh, expert uh, production and editing skills, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Uh, We tip our uh, Negro League cap. How about a Birmingham Black Barons cap? In your general direction this week, thank you so much, sir. And uh, more to come next week. Fun times ahead. Lots of great topics, lots of great interviews, a few even famous people, too. Coming up, stay tuned. We love uh, hearing from you. Thanks for all your suggestions. And uh, until next week, take care. We love you. Bye. Bye.